This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's my great pleasure to uh, introduce um, a wonderful series that the Department of Psychiatry and the UCSF School of Medicine have planned for you for the Osher Mini Medical School. Uh, we have um, a number of sessions uh, focused on mental health in this series uh, that really go from uh, basic clinical neuroscience, really understanding sort of how genetics um, interacts with uh, the development of mental illness, and really kind of zooming out, um, taking a look at the effects that mental illness has on society, um, whether that is um, in substance use disorders, in addiction, um, and with violence. And so tonight, uh, we have um, the pleasure of actually having Dr. Descartes Lee, who was a former uh, chair of this uh, course uh, many moons ago. Um, And Descartes uh, is going to be uh, kicking us off with an introduction to mental health and really understanding um, how we sort of conceptualize what is sort of normal human behavior um, and what crosses over into abnormal um, behavior and pathology. Uh, just as a way of introduction, so Dr. Descartes Lee is a professor of clinical psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry. Um, he holds many leadership roles for our department. He's the director of our ECT service, that's electroconvulsive therapy. He also is our director of our bipolar disorders program. In addition to running those two clinical services, uh, Dr. Lee is the director of medical student education and is responsible for the education of all of our medical students um, when it comes to the topic uh, of psychiatry. Dr. Lee is a close friend and colleague, and I've worked with him um, over the years, and I will say that he is fun, he's pragmatic, um, he really kind of makes things simple and takes, I think, very complicated and sometimes complex and confusing concepts and brings them to life and helps, I think, really simplify them in ways that um, make us um, uh, better individuals to really understand some of these um, complexities, particularly when it comes to mental health. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Lee uh, to the stage. And uh, we are very fortunate tonight to hear his talk on psychiatric diagnosis. Thank you, Eric. Can everyone hear me okay? Um, it's nice. That's a very nice introduction. I, I like to have all the titles because it's in lieu of salary, I believe. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, psychiatric diagnoses, kind of, the, uh, kind of some of the ethical and conceptual principles behind it. Um, for those, uh, I'm going to talk using a Prezi format. How many of you are familiar with Prezi here? So just raise your hands. So for those of you who are not, it's kind of like one big... Uh, slide, and in the upper left-hand corner, you can see the URL, and we'll send out the slide uh, links later. Um, but so those of you who are watching at home, for example, can uh, follow along on the side with a Prezi, and you can just click along with me as I'm talking, because there's some videos embedded if you can't see them. But hopefully we're going to be able to embed them all in the, in the video um, that we make from this tonight. Um, I'm going to try to answer these questions about uh, psychiatric diagnosis. How are mental disorders different from other other disorders? And are kind of mental disorders real? These are kind of, and how do we know someone has a mental disorder? And let me just back up a little bit for the talk here. So in this talk, I'm going to divide it up into kind of five pieces here. One is just the introduction here. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about kind of the philosophy of um, diagnosis and how we think about mechanisms. Then I'm going to talk about the perspectives approach, which is a way of looking at 
uh, mental disorders from four different uh, approaches, four different phenomena that are not, that are not necessarily mutually exclusive, uh, but can actually complement us and understand how we can think about mental disorders, because I think we sometimes get confused about those kinds of things. Then I'll talk about the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. How many of you are familiar with that? Okay, so that's the kind of the dictionary of psychiatry that gives definitions of all the psychiatric diagnoses. And then finally, I wind up with uh, the research domain criteria. How many of you are familiar with that? That's a current research-oriented uh, initiative put forward by the National Institutes of Mental Health to help us understand how the brain works. And I'll go into a little bit of the difference between the DSM and the research domain criteria in that they're fundamentally different ways of approaching uh, how the mind and the brain work. So that's kind of the uh, overview of the talk today. And I'm going to talk, um, uh, and I tend to ask rhetorical questions. Uh, I want you to, an- when I raise my hand, I want you to uh, raise your hand and answer them also if you can, or I'll pick someone to answer the questions. But sometimes I'll just ask rhetorical questions and kind of just move things along. Uh, I don't have any disclosures. Any commercial disclosures? And I'm going to give you three metaphors to think about. And these are three metaphors in in ways in how you might think about mental disorders. The three metaphors are a positive feedback loop, um, uh, a house that is too cold, and uh, Lake Tanganyika cichlids. What do these things have to do with uh, mental disorders, and how am I going to use these to uh, help understand what I'm talking about? You'll find out. Okay, so... Let me, let's go through a little bit of a scenario here. Let's say we have a 59-year-old man, and he's sad all day. Would we say he has depression? How many, or how, what would we need to know in order for us to... What, what kinds of questions would you want to know to say this person has a mental disorder? Any thoughts about what kinds of things would you want to know if you were this person's friend or, or family member? What is happening in his life? What is happening in his life Currently. And can you say more about, like, why would you want to know that? Did he have a major event that causes sadness? Excellent. Did he have a major event that causes sadness? Or, alternatively, if nothing happened, what would... Someone else had their hand raised? Is he having good sleep habits, sleep experiences? Is he having good sleep? Is his sleep abnormal or normal or not? Is this a common thing for him to be sad all day? Is he commonly sad all day? Because if you were sad all day commonly, what would that mean? Well, like if he, if he has more sad days than not sad days. If he's more, is it a, if, okay. If he's sad more days than not sad, sad more days, then he'd be more depressed. If you're just sad just one day, that'd be less problematic maybe. And I'm sorry if I'm repeating. It's kind of, they told me to do that. <laughs> How long has this gone on? How long has this gone on? And what, why would you want to know that? Okay, so it's a combination of how long was it, if it was a really long time versus a short time, and versus was there a triggering event. Now, let me add something to this little scenario here. Let's say we know his spouse died. What else would we want to know? Can I give you that little clue? Let's say his spouse died. Anyone else want to give a little, have other questions what they would want to know? What are his other support systems? What are his other support systems? Anyone else? Someone yeah. When did she die? Because if she died 30 years ago, we might think, well, it's not related, right? If she died a week ago, it's different. Any other things? Is he thinking of joining her by his own hand? 
is he th- is he thinking about joining her by his own hand? Would that make you think more of a mental disorder or less of a mental? So if he's thinking about suicide, then you're thinking maybe he is. Uh, it's more we would consider that an illness more, right? Um, anyone want to know whether he hated his wife or not? Would that be? No. Of course, we all love our wives. Sorry, I shouldn't even bring that. Okay, so these are great questions. So these, I think you're really getting at, like, these are common, typical questions that we'd want to know about beginning to formulate or think about whether this person has an illness or a disorder or whether this is just kind of normal, right? Now, as the question is getting at, we can't just base it on... um, uh, it has to be based on a bunch of different factors. One is the, what is the context. Now, uh, what, why do we have trouble with psychiatric diagnoses? And I have just listed here a couple, uh, three of them. One is there's a stigma. People who have mental disorders or even doctors who are thinking, or people who are near people, there's a negative feeling about people who have mental disorders. Mental disorders can mean lack of control, have a lot of negative connotations. So that kind of may hinder us a little bit in making a diagnosis or having people being forthcoming enough to be diagnosed. There's a great overlap between normal and illness. So, in different, so for example, what may be normal in one culture could be abnormal in another culture and vice versa in terms of behavior. Does that make sense? So, for example, my, I was telling Eric about my son. But a while ago when he was like little, like he was eight years old, one day, one day he comes up to me and goes, Hey, Dad, how do you say A- minus in Chinese? And I'm like, what? He goes, F. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. I know maybe it's a little bit racist. So I, but, you know, he's only eight years old, so what am I going to do? I said, that's very funny, Isaac. You know, just go, go back and finish studying for your SATs. Um, okay, but anyways, you can see there's a discrepancy in like, what might be considered normal in one culture and what might be uh, uh, abnormal in another culture. And finally, there's the brain-mind gap. And what I mean by that is we, we know, uh, we believe... Most of the stuff that occurs in the mind originates from the brain, but we don't know how. So when I say mind, I mean things like opinions, fantasies, dreams, desires. Those are kind of mind things. The brain, we know, is made up of all these neurons that can fire and stuff like that, but we don't know exactly how those neurons firing is able to do things like create art or make music, or have conversations, or give lectures, or even talk to other people necessarily. We're getting there, but we have a big gap in terms of how we understand how the brain works and how it manifests in all these cool things that we can actually do. So given that gap, given the overlap between normal and illness, and given these, the stigma issues, what are some of the things that we can think about in terms of how we understand psychiatric disorders? Great. So the question is, what's the difference between the brain and the mind? The brain is an organ that's in the head, right, that's encased in a skull made up of neurons. So when I think of it, like it's a, imagine we had a heart. Okay, we have a heart. But we don't know how it, like now we do know how, how it contributes to the life, how it pumps blood and how it, you know, blood courses up to the brain and stuff like that. So we know how the heart works and how it does what it does. But the, we don't know, the, the output of the brain is the mind, I would say. And so the output, we don't know how it does, how it works exactly. So imagine we had a cell phone, for example. Another metaphor here is let's say you had a cell phone and you, didn't, and you just found it on the beach or someone who was in a, in a non-internet culture found this iPhone and it could talk and show videos and stuff like that. The person wouldn't know how it creates what it creates. 
So that's the, that's the situation we're in with the brain. We've, this thing has fallen out of the sky, or it's in our, all are in our heads, but we don't really know how exactly it works. And we do believe, or most doctors believe, that all the mind stuff comes from the brain. And in fact, that the, na- the philosophical name for that is materialism. A materialist position means that, and this is more probably detailed than we need to be, but means that you believe that all the stuff from the mind comes from the brain. If you believe, for example, in a soul, that some supernatural or above nature kind of uh, spirit or something like that drives the brain, that's the non-material position. But doctors, we're trying to understand, we, we have the hypothesis that everything generated by the mind comes from the brain. Is that clear in terms of the difference between the brain and the mind? Okay. <laughs> the brain is just the organ. The mind is the output. Okay, so... Uh, what are some of the philosophical uh, underpinnings of this? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about a couple of different perspectives. Another way of using is a reductionist perspective, boiling things down to its basic parts. There's the cultural relative perspective, meaning uh, the way manifest, illnesses manifests is um, uh, strongly influenced by cultural and then there's the emergent, or also known as the dialectical perspective, where different pieces integrate or connect or interact with each other to cause the phenomenon. So you can't really boil things down. Okay, that's the emergent perspective. And I'm going to go through these one, one at a time here. Okay, so um, to be uncertain is to be uncomfortable, but to be certain is to be ridiculous. So I found that in a fortune cookie, I think. So anyone know who this is? They don't have an apple falling on his head? Maybe that one. Isaac Newton. Okay, so the reductionist perspective is there's an underlying truth and that there are basic laws that govern whatever phenomena is that you're looking at. So Isaac Newton was famous for uh, uh, the physics, of, the laws of physics, right? Force equals mass times acceleration, Newtonian mechanics, and so forth. So when we talk about a biomedical definition of a disease, we're talking about a derangement of underlying physical mechanisms. And the point of a reductionist perspective is you want to get to some basic fundamental law that then you can generalize. And that's a very powerful way of looking at things. If you can break things down into ever smaller and smaller pieces and figure out what the basic underlying fundamental law is, that's the reductionist mode. And uh, sometimes you hear criticisms of it, but there's a lot of good things to be said about it. That's how we figure out how cells work, DNA, and things like that. Um, another example would be uh, an example of trying to boil things down to basic laws is like in the old days, they saw the moon, we still see the moon this way. Sometimes it's a full moon, a half moon, and so forth. But rather than saying, well, there's a moon that kind of, uh, there's half light or there's a spirit that comes out of the sky, it's much simpler to posit, oh, there are these physical laws and it's one uh, sphere that circulates this other sphere called the sun, and you have this one underlying law. You don't have to explain it with all these other kinds of laws. That's how they understood the motions of the planets. Why is this planet like moving up and down in the sky every night? Didn't make sense unless you can break it down and say, oh, we have this fundamental idea that it's, there's a planet, there's a sun, and there's those planets that rotate around, and we're on one of those planets that rotates around with us, with them. So, uh, again, uh, reductionism helps us understand like, things at its basic level. So understanding the brain by going down to the neuronal level. Like, this is how neurons fire. Did you guys learn? Have, does anyone know? Neurons are these long kind of these cells that have these long, what they're called ex, uh, axons. And what you stimulate one end, and it fire, uh, electrical little current fires and goes down to this end, and it has an output. That would be, oh, we found out a basic unit of the brain now. 
the, these are neurons, and we have, so we're boiling, we're breaking it down further and further. So that's reductionism. So now, a cultural relativist perspective means that you could still have some underlying law, but then as a disease, for example, could be manifested differently in different cultures. So what happens is you have an underlying disease, and then basically in culture A, you get one manifestation A, and in culture B, you get manifestation B. An example of that would be obsessive-compulsive disorder. That's probably, obsessive-compulsive disorder is an example of probably a disease of the brain that will be described using brain circuitry that we'll figure out eventually by breaking it down to its component parts. But on the, on the, that's the basic mechanism of OCD. But in Egypt, it turns out that the manifestations of obsessions in Egypt are people worried about having blasphemous thoughts. That's the predominant manifestation of OCD in Egypt, for example. And then in studies in the United States of people who go to clinics who have OCD, the most common obsession are contamination fears, worried you're contaminated by germs and then washing your hands a lot. So can you see how that's the, the two different cultures affect the same underlying biomedical condition and causes two different manifestations? Now, what are the limits of force equals mass times acceleration or the reductionist mode? So an example would be force times mass, the physical laws, the Newtonian mechanics. I used to believe that, for example, um, basketball could be completely explained by Newtonian mechanics, right? So how the ball flies through the air, how it... uh, um, how you dribble it. All that depends on how much force you put on it, twist, torque, and stuff, like blah, blah, blah. The problem is, is it doesn't explain certain other aspects of basketball, like how do you know who's winning? How do you, determine, how do you tell who's winning in the game? Who determines who wins in basketball? Keeping the score is not determined by these force equals mass times acceleration. There are other laws at play. Uh, for example, why do we even play basketball? Why, does it, why, why even does anyone care about basketball? I know you guys don't care about basketball because you're here not watching the Warriors tonight. <laughs> and by the way, those of you who don't follow the NBA, which is most of you, the, the person you saw was me. Just <laughs> okay. Why is that funny? I don't know. Okay. Uh, the emergent or dialectical perspective. This means when elements interact together to produce a phenomenon. And I'm going to mention this, that this may be a play in a lot of psychiatric disorders. Okay, so this is the first of the metaphors. Remember the positive feedback loop. So do you guys know about the positive feedback loop? So if let's say I were to hold this mic up to, and they're going to tell me not to do this, hold it up to the speaker, one of the speakers over there, the, the sound coming out of the speaker would go into the mic, and the mic would then transfer the sound to the amplifier, and the amplifier would make the sound even louder, and then it would keep going until it got really loud. Has everyone heard that before, where like, you get this feedback, the speaker's wandered too close to the... To the, uh, uh, speak, uh, to the speaker itself, the, the, the lecturer. Now, you can think of certain psychiatric disorders or other phenomena having the same kind of pattern. Um, a kind of a classic example would be panic attacks. So in panic attacks, an individual will kind of maybe feel a little anxious, a little worried, and then when you think about it, maybe you're, when you feel a little anxious or revved up a little bit, your heart's beating a little faster or you're starting to breathe a little faster. And if you notice you're breathing a little faster, you might start to think to yourself, oh, maybe I'm breathing a little fast, and my heart's going even faster. There's something wrong with that. That's not quite right. So then you start to breathe a little faster, and your heart begins to pound even more. Then you're thinking, wow, my heart is really pounding. There's something the matter with me. My heart shouldn't be pounding like this. I might be having a heart attack. Now, if you think you're going to be having a heart attack, you're going to get more anxious, and so then you'll have more manifestations of the illness. And you can see that's a positive feedback. Positive not being good or bad, but positive meaning it amplifies itself. 
The interesting piece of this kind of positive feedback loop for something like a panic attack is, in fact, it is dependent upon each one of the elements of working properly. If the elements were not working properly, like if you thought you were going to die and you weren't anxious, that's a little bit weird, right? It's the fact that each element works correctly that causes the phenomenon. So uh, when we talk about an emergent phenomenon, sometimes it's not that each individual element is broken, but that they're arranged in such a way that causes a problem. Is that kind of... Everyone gets that now? So it's a positive feedback loop. And ha- that's when we're beginning to understand the mind, there are things that are higher order than just the neuron that we have to understand at a higher level. Like we can't understand um, uh, how to, um, uh, how, why people talk or anything at the ba- uh, on, on the basis of neurons yet. We're still at the level of how do people think and what do they want and what are they worried about. But a lot of research is done on even what I just described on a smaller, more cellular level in terms of brain functioning. These are called faulty circuits, and there's been a lot of research and interest in faulty circuits within the brain. Uh, how many of you read this book, The Spirit Catches You When You Fall Down? So this is a, a lovely book about uh, um, a Hmong child, uh, an ethnic minority child in, I think, Stockton, California, where the doctors and the patient have an interaction that, in a certain sense, generates a lot of the problems in and of itself. So my point about emergent phenomenon is that it helps you with a flexibility approach when you're working or thinking about um, mental disorders and working with patients. It reduces the amount of, like, black and white thinking that you have. Like, everything has to be boiled down to one, this one fundamentally thing wrong. It could be an interaction of systems that causes the problem. And a lot of times it reveals, in particularly in psychiatry, reveals hidden assumptions that play a role in psychiatric disorders. So there may be cultural assumptions that play a role, for example, and I wrote, uh, personal self-worth is related to physical appearance. With that kind of um, cultural value, you may then predispose individuals in that culture or, or who believe in that statement uh, might, for example, have more likelihood of having an eating disorder. So that's a, a situation where culture, the, physical, the person has an interaction. Uh, but uh, the last to discover water is the fish, meaning like it's, sometimes it's hard for us to understand why do we have these kinds of disorders? What, what are the social and cultural contexts that, that gives rise to these disorders? And so the, there are these things called cultural syndromes, which the existence of in some ways proves the emergent kind of phenomenon. What are cultural syndromes? Cultural syndromes are emergent phenomenon in which cultural beliefs interact with individuals to generate illness. In other words, you can't have this kind of illness unless you have a certain kind of cultural belief. Or yeah. And there's a whole list of Asian cultural syndromes here. Um, I don't have time to go through all these, but I'll pick on one, which is hikikomori. How many of you have heard of hikikomori? Usually males who stay teenage boys. Well, they usually start as teenage boys, but some are in their 30s and 40s living at home, kind of hanging out at home, playing video games, listening to music, and just staying in the room the entire time. So that's a cultural phenomenon that we don't necessarily see in the United States, and I think we're starting to understand. And the way to understand it is not necessarily only understanding what the individual person is doing, but understanding the larger phenomenon, like what kind of parental attitudes or societal attitudes sustain this kind of uh, behavior or this phenomenon. Like I, my imagination is in America, I know if my son starts to stay home later after he's 18, we're going to try to we're going to be pretty firm in trying to boot them out going on to the next stage, right? So there may be, there are probably different cultural values that are in play here 
uh, and that just interviewing the individual alone isn't going to do it, help us understand the disorder in its full entirety. We have to understand the total context as well. Now, there are cultural syndromes in the United States. I won't, um, I'm going to list some of these as being somewhat provocative, but you can think of cultural elements as playing key roles in many of these. I mentioned eating disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, dissociative disorders, personality disorders, body dysmorphic disorder, substance abuse, and somatic symptom disorders. All may have a strong element of cultural values or beliefs in play in them. And um, for a really interesting book, if you're interested in this kind of thing, is called um, Crazy Like Us by Ethan Waters, W-A-T-T-E-R-S. Excellent book. Describes four different phenomena of uh, kind of American or U.S. psychiatric phenomenon transporting to other cultures. Super fascinating. But I don't, I don't want to spend all our time just talking about that. I just bring up cultural syndromes as an example of emergent phenomenon that occur in um, psychiatric disorders. Uh, so let me go on to the mechanistic approach. What is a mechanistic approach? So before I get, here's the house metaphor. Let me have a let me have some audience participation here. If you were, if I were to ask you, list some of the factors. Like I, I, there are these houses in San Francisco. Some of them are too cold. Why would some houses be too cold here in San Francisco versus other compared with other houses? Depending if they face the sun. Do they face the sun or not? Excellent. I like that. Uh, insulation. insulation. The insulation in San Francisco sucks, right? I've learned this when I moved here too. Wendy. There's no heat. The heater is broken, or some, the, the, the person doesn't have a good heater. Anyone else? A lot of houses have ceilings 9, 10, 11 feet high. The ceilings are too high. Any other ones? Well, you know, I've been in the situation. I might think it's too cold. Another person might think it's too hot. So Excellent. So something's too hot or too cold is kind of relative to someone's perspective in a certain sense, right? Or so you may think it's too cold, someone else thinks it's too hot. Anything else? No one mentioned like a house in the outer Richmond versus a house in the Mission District, right? There's a difference there too, so the context of which it is. Now, I don't want to push the metaphor too hard, but why are some people too de- more depressed than other people? You might think of it as being multifactorial in that way. Some people are more depressed. There are lots of different factors that go into it. Let me go back to the house phenomenon. And this, this is going to be a kind of a, a way to think about things. Is Imagine a house where you have an air conditioner, a heater, and a thermostat. Okay, now if you have a simple system like this, a relatively simple, you guys gave much more complex systems for houses being too cold. You can imagine some scenarios in which if, let's say, the uh, air conditioner were broken and it was always on, then the house would be too cold, Right? Another situation, the heater could be broken. Someone mentioned the heater being broken. Then the house would be too cold also. But the reason why the house was too cold was two different reasons, right? Finally, you can imagine maybe the heater is too close to the thermostat. Have you ever had that phenomenon where the the thermostat that you're working is right next to the heater? So it heats up right away, but then the rest of the house is still freezing cold. Um, So those those are kind of the ways of thinking about if the manifest reason for why something is the way it is, there can be a lot of underlying um, ways of, of um, understanding why it's too cold. Now, in the uh, mechanistic approach, which is a scientific way of thinking about how would we understand a complex system like this, is what you'd want to do is you want to decompose it. So try to break it down into its constituent uh, elements. So like you'd want to take the 
uh, air conditioner out first and try to figure it, figure it out, right? That's a reductionist mode. You're trying to take each little piece and figure it out. So you, do, you break it apart into its, into its individual parts. You analyze each part, and then you try to integrate them. How do these pieces interact? How do they work vis-a-vis each other? So if you can imagine us trying to do this on a massive, very complicated scale with the brain, that's what we're, I shouldn't say you should imagine, that is what we're doing on a much more complicated scale. We're breaking down the brain, we know little pieces of the brain do this and that, but sometimes they have to work together to have cause certain phenomenon. Okay? Another, I think, helpful reason to have this metaphor is you can see that just because you have a certain treatment for the situation, that doesn't tell you necessarily what the cause was. So let's say you put another extra heater into this house, that would make the house warmer, right? No matter what the problem was, whether the air conditioner was on all the time or whether the, this heater was too close to the thermostat, if you put a, or if this heater was broken, you put another heater in. Putting another heater in would warm up the house, right? Similarly, if, you don't know, if you're in the situation with certain psychiatric disorders, just because you give someone a treatment for it and it helps, that doesn't mean you've explained the cause of the illness, Right? So just because we give someone, how many of you heard of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors? Those like Prozac or fluoxetine, antidepressants can, treat, can cause changes in neurotransmitter levels, but that doesn't mean that's the cause of the illness in the first place. So we have to be careful about implying causation because of the treatment. That doesn't mean there isn't a possibility or it doesn't have something to do with it, but you can't say, oh, that's because we have a deficiency of serotonin, so that's why that works. Okay. Is everyone following me at this point? Okay. When you're a psychiatrist or a doctor or just thinking about mental disorders as a family member, you have to go through this phenomenon of explanatory oscillation. So when you're decomposing something, you have to look at it from lots of different ways. Uh, In psychiatry, sometimes we have to look at things from a psychological level, from a social level, from a biological molecular level if we can. You have to look at it from different ways. And the example I have here is light. So most of you know that light sometimes we think of as a wave. Sometimes we think of it as a particle. And physicists go back and forth between these two perspectives, not to say one is right and one is wrong, but it kind of depends on what the problem is that you're trying to solve in the moment. So certain problems are better solved, oh, it's a photon and they're little particles. Other problems are better solved with it's a wave and it diffracts and it reflects and it neutralizes each other and so forth. So that's the phenomenon of explanatory oscillation. And when you see, uh, when you think of yourself as like, well, I thought depression was this, and now someone said depression was that, or someone said yet another thing, that's explanatory oscillation. You're having to go between lots of different ways of thinking about things that are not necessarily, not even necessarily related. They're not necessarily opposing, but they're not necessarily related. So the idea is that psychiatric disorders, as we learn more about them, probably have multiple causal loops and are very complicated. So that shouldn't deter us, because there are other complicated uh, phenomena, like the Krebs cycle, which is the citric acid biochemistry cycle, which we have been able to figure out, even though it's a very complicated, with a lot of interacting loops, feedback loops in it. Um, we also have the U.S. healthcare system, which is even more complicated. Um, and I don't, I, we may not be able to figure it out. That's true. But uh, you know, we, we have some idea. It's, it is at least person-made, man-made. So um, there are other examples of, so we can't give up hope. We can figure these things out, even though that they're super complicated. 
So what I would say is you can view disorders, not only psychiatric disorders, but in many ways from multiple different perspectives. So if you took a list of any psychiatric disorder or even non-psychiatric disorders, but let's say anorexia nervosa, post-traumatic stress disorder, schizophrenia, even things like chronic fatigue syndrome that are not necessarily psychiatric, uh, diabetes mellitus, which is uh, in general not held to be psychiatric disorder. You can look at them from a biomedical point of view, a cultural relativist point of view, and an emergent point of view, how things, cultural values interact to generate the illness. Okay, so that's kind of the basic kind of, how would I say, philosophical, hopefully I haven't gotten too off the wall here with my with philosophy about reductionism, cultural relativism, and the emergent perspective, and how different ways of which we can understand psychiatric disorders. And they're not mutually exclusive. It's not as if we shouldn't try to reduce things and break them down to their basic components, but there may be a limit to that, I think is the point. We shouldn't be afraid to say, oh, there may be an interaction that's causing disorders too. Okay, let me move on to the perspectives approach. The perspectives approach is there's been some very smart guys here named uh, Paul McHugh and Philip Slavny, and there's this book called The Perspectives of Psychiatry. It's an excellent book, and it's chock full of, um, uh, for doctors, chock full of clinical pearls and tips and stuff, actually. But the idea in the perspectives approach is that there are basically four main ways of looking at disorders, particularly in psychiatry. There's a disease approach, there's a dimensional approach, there's a behavioral approach, and there's a life story approach. And I'm going to go through each one of these uh, at a time with you and hopefully discuss the implications of looking at a disease from that approach and what it tells us about how we can approach not only uh, thinking about it but also how to treat it or manage it. Um, the beginning of wisdom is to call things by their right names. That's a Confucius saying. Like, and the belief is you've got to get some consensus on what you're talking about. Is you can't just talk about everything willy-nilly. Okay, so the disease perspective, which is implicit in probably all, if you've gone to any of these other talks and in, doc, in, in, in medicine in general, and it's pretty straightforward, so I don't want to belabor it, but the classic medical model of how we do things, and it's a very powerful model, by the way, the, I don't mean any criticism of it. But the disease approach is basically you identify signs and symptoms, like what is the person having? What is, is it chest pain? Do they, what is their blood pressure? Things like that. Then you link the symptoms to some sort of pathology. Oh, you notice the person's breathing faster or they're sweating. Is it their heart that's the problem? So identifying the heart as the pathology, as it were. And then you determine the etiology. Then you get a pathologist who can take apart hearts and look at them and say, oh, well, this one had coronary arteries that were diseased and caused, um, caused myocardial infarction or death of brain tissue. This other person maybe had tuberculosis that infected the, the, the wrapping of the, of the heart that constricted it, and the, the, so the person had problems that way. Uh, so that's the classic biomedical disease approach. You have a clinical entity, meaning a syndrome or a collection of signs and symptoms, you find what the pathological entity is, and then you dig further down and find out the cause. So, for example, shortness of breath, sweating, swollen feet might be uh, signs and symptoms of, say, congestive heart failure or heart failure. Then the cause of heart failure, there could be many. Tuberculosis, I mentioned, coronary artery disease, et cetera, could be the cause, the etiology of congestive heart failure. So that's the classic biomedical model. You start from the top and you dig your way down. Now, what is the dimensional perspective the dimensional perspective asserts that we all have like characteristics that can be uh, that some are good at and some are bad at, or some have more of or some have less at. So a dimensional perspective posits 
a, what we call a bell-shaped curve or normal distribution. So if we were to take some, any top, any kind of characteristics of people, um, and we could do things like blood sugar or height or weight, for example, those would be things that are characteristics on a bell-shaped curve. But in psychiatry, we're interested in products of the mind. So another product of the mind, for example, might be attention. So you could see that some people... Most people are in the middle for their attention, but at some end, some people have really good attention, and some people have really poor attention. And if you're at one end of a spectrum, or one end of a distribution, you're more likely to have it be diagnosed with a disorder. So if the disorder were, if you were looking at attentional span, if you measured people's attention span, people at the bottom end, you might, they, much, they would have a much higher rate of being diagnosed with attention uh, deficit disorder. That makes sense? Um, Another example, I'll bring up a, the controversial uh, concept of IQ, intelligence. If you gave people intelligence tests, you would find them distributing along a normal distribution. Now, the thing to think about these normal distributions is they're not necessarily illnesses in and of themselves. They're kind of latent characteristics of the person. So what does intelligence test, what does IQ test test, actually? What they're supposed to test is you give someone uh, an exam, and they're supposed to give them a, a novel or new kind of situation that you put them in, and you ask them to solve a problem. That's what intelligence is meant to be. It's a novel situation that people supposedly have not encountered before, and therefore it's a measure of some hidden quality that you wouldn't be able to see just on looking at them, similarly with attention. And so what that means is, only in certain situations where if you can combine this kind of temperamental uh, proclivity with a certain situation, then you would generate a disease or a problem or a disorder. So someone, for example, who scores low on IQ tests might could do very, many things very well. They may not be good at new situations, but if they had certain kinds of jobs, in some ways they may excel at and be better at if they're very focused and just do one thing and they are really focused on that, that you would never, they would not necessarily have a dis disorder necessarily. Now, uh, I have this little area here. If you, look at, if you look at true IQ, epidemiological studies in the population of people, people's IQs, you do see a little bump at the bottom here, a little shaded area, which describes increased area of, you have slightly more people who have um, lower IQs, okay? So most, you have a bell-shaped distribution, but plus on top of them, you have a little extra number of people who have a lower IQ. And those might be people who you would think of having genetic predispositions, like phenylketonuria, or chromosomal problems, like fragile X, or uh, toxin, like fetal alcohol syndrome, or Down syndrome. Um, those would be considered diseases, right? we would consider Down syndrome as a disease. So it adds to this little shaded area. And I just bring this up as an example where the disease and the dimensional perspectives are not mutually exclusive. They can add up together. Does that make sense? And again, these are proclivities. So what they, a proclivity is another way of saying that is a diathesis. And another way of saying like the environmental triggers would be the stress. So there's a term in psychology and in psychiatry um, called the stress diathesis model. So you might think of certain people as being having certain proclivities to being depressed, for example. They might, therefore, have uh, what might stress one person out into triggering into them a depression might not trigger another person. That's how we would understand a diathesis, stress diathesis model. Now, in any given situation, some individuals might adhere, look more like a disease model, like 
a lot of the individuals I see with these recurrent bouts of major depression without a clear trigger, it's pretty clearly like a illness that is episodic and comes and goes. I would consider that what, the way we should look at that as a disease model. Other individuals, you might think of, oh, they seem to only get into problems when certain things happen. That would be a stress diathesis model. Okay. Have I beaten that to death? And you can see there are different kinds of curves that would describe different kinds of phenomenon. So, for example, another even in, in medicine, for example, uh, um, body mass index. Has everyone heard of that? It's a measure of obesity, right? Body mass index is on a bell-shaped curve. Some people are bigger than others. That's just the way it is. And it's a proclivity. It's a risk factor for illness. So if you are on, let's say, you have a much higher uh, body mass index, you're at a greater risk of having heart attacks, for example. That would be uh, a stress diathesis kind of model. Okay, so that's that for the dimensional piece. Let me move on to the behavioral piece. The behavioral piece, the behavioral perspective is when you think of people's behaviors um, as being choices that they make that lead to um, certain behaviors that lead to consequences. Okay, so it's Whenever you think of someone, it feels like the person's making a choice about something, we would consider that a behavioral disorder. So classic examples of, of uh, behavioral disorders would be like chemical dependency or substance use. The person makes a choice at some point. Now, the interesting thing is it may not be the choice that we think of it as. Uh, after two drinks, the person's choice really is much less. The choice really may be further upstream that we don't realize, like, oh, the person decided to walk by their favorite bar one night. That was the choice where they actually made a choice and hadn't understood the long-term down, downstream ramifications of that. So that it would be an example of a behavioral disorder. Other examples might be eating disorders. For example, using of ways to cope with certain stressors can be overused, and you can develop behavioral disorders that way. So um, uh, I have some other ones, factitious disorders or chronic suicidality. These are like kind of learned behaviors over time that may get inadvertently reinforced. So drinking may get inadvertently reinforced, meaning, hey, you feel good, you had a good time, so you may do it again. And it may be unclear what the negative ramifications are for the person, uh, to that person individually. And I didn't, I should just mention, like, in psychiatry, some of the disease, uh, disor- some, of the, uh, some of the disorders that fit the disease model pretty well, or we're pretty sure fit a disease model, are things like schizophrenia, or bipolar disorder, or obsessive compulsive disorder. Those would be like, we're, we're kind of hot on the trail of like a disease model with those. A dimensional perspective would be things more like um, attention deficit disorder might be an example. Okay? Um, and then the behavioral model is the one I've just mentioned here. Anxiety disorders may be partly on a temperamental level, too. Some people are just more anxious than others, and so smaller triggers can trigger them to be more anxious. They may be more predisposed to having panic attacks, for example. And so then you might think of that as there's a dimensional perspective to that, but then there's also the, uh, the trigger perspective to it. And then in, in anxiety disorders, avoiding things can also uh, is a behavior that's engaged in. So then you have the kind of connection of several different perspectives in a single individual. So anyone know who this person is? Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. So sometimes the question comes up, well, what if the person who has a... Uh, these behaviors, clearly choice behaviors that are clearly maladaptive or detrimental. Is this a mental disorder? How many people think that would be a mental disorder? In general, we don't think of it as a mental disorder because we don't think of an underlying brain etiology, so going back to the disease model. So in general, if, the, if, it's, if the, it's really the mind at a very high level that might be 
aberrant, like the person's values are so different from ours. In that situation, we don't consider that a mental disorder. So that way we, in the same way, we don't consider political dissidents as having mental disorders, even though that their behavior is kind of against the general flow and may cause them individual personal problems and distress, we don't consider that a mental disorder because it doesn't have to do with, as far as we can tell, a brain function. It's more of a values, a choice that the person makes about their values. The life story method is what we think of is when we think of like hearing someone's story and being supportive and trying to make them feel better. Maybe that's the way to think about it. When you understand someone's story from a sympathetic point of view, Okay, so in this in that setting, doctors try to help people by understanding what the situation was, what happened, and then what the outcome was. So, in the example of you were expecting your spouse to retire with you and live a long life, they died, and you you are left uh, bereft or disappointed in your lifelong dreams. And in that situation, the way we understand that as physicians is not through a chemical test or anything like that. We use our own powers of empathy and understanding other people's minds to say, oh, yeah, that's very disappointing, right? Um, if some one person, so to understand why someone may, for example, be upset if they got an A-, minus, just going back to another example, you have to understand what they were expecting and what they were thinking, and then you can say, oh, yes, I can see why you were upset by that, right? If you could get into the other person's mind and understand it. That is the life story method of understanding why people come to see doctors, right? Another way of understanding... Now, they're not often diagnosed psychological, psychiatric disorders, per se, but they're a reason why people come to see psychiatrists. Now, the life story approach is often like, uh, combined with one of these other approaches. Okay? So, for example, the disease model, you help the person. So if I say to someone, oh, you know, I think, given your history, you have bipolar disorder. Not only have I said you have bipolar disorder, they now have to grapple with the ramifications of, well, what does it mean to have bipolar What is my prognosis? What kind of life can I live with that? And helping them work through that kind of thing, that would be the life story approach of helping someone. That's kind of doctoring at it, as we understand it as being the empathic doctor in the bedside manner. The dimensional perspective what we want to do, in the, if you understand someone as a dimensional issue, as a physician or as a family member, oh, that person gets anxious in a lot of these different kinds of situations. You can help them by understanding, oh, you have this kind of temperamental proclivity, um, and let's try to avoid situations or stressors where you can be overwhelmed because of these things. I know you're an anxious person, so it's best not for you to go and give talks to a bunch of people and be recorded on videotape, right, for example. Um, uh, that's a kind of understanding someone from a life story approach and a dimensional perspective. And in general, in a lot of ways, working on these dimensional perspectives is very challenging. As physicians, we don't have a lot of good treatments sometimes for things like attention, weight. These are like risk factors that we can address, but actually sometimes they're very hard to treat directly. And then behavioral problems. So if people have behavioral, they keep making the same choices over and over again that lead to negative outcomes. And oftentimes individuals don't realize that they're necessarily making a choice. So, for example, someone who has panic attacks, they begin to worry that, oh, if I'm outside, suppose I have a panic attack while I'm driving a car, I could crash. So then they stop driving. The problem with that is you begin to worry about driving, and that becomes a trigger of panic disorder, and then you don't drive even more. So the more you avoid it, actually sometimes it can get worse. And then the syndrome of agoraphobia can occur. Agoraphobia is wanting to stay in. It's the fear of open places in Greek, but really what it means is fear of being in a place where you can't get help or you can't escape. So people become more and more closed into their houses, and they're making kind of a behavioral choice 
that over time leads to more and more negative outcomes. So when you are the doctor or the person or family member or whoever trying to help this person or even yourself, from a life story approach, you want to remind patients of or people of their past choices and their consequences. And you have to constantly remind people of like this kind of pattern for them. And that's a very powerful intervention as a physician, which isn't like prescribing a medication or doing an operation that cures someone of a disease, but it's really helping them understanding the choices that they made. So it's a combination of that would be an intervention that's based on a combination of life story and understanding someone from, from a behavioral point of view. So let me just, uh, some take-home points about the life story perspective. Again, this incorporates things like intentions, plans, values, and places them in the context of settings, which lead to consequences. These are powerfully combined with other approaches, and it helps to, the reason why doctors, one of the reasons why doctors like to be doctors is because then you can help uh, uh, re-motivate and re-moralize the individual, kind of making sense of suffering. And that all occurs because of the ability, as either a friend or a clinician, of being able to get in someone's shoes and seeing things from their point of view. And I'm going to emphasize that aspect of empathy or thinking about what other people are thinking a little bit later. So that's the perspectives approach. It's a very fascinating approach. I've gone over it really quickly for you. There's a whole book on this topic. But it's a really interesting way, and if we can talk about it a little bit later about examples and so forth. I've tried to give a few examples. But um, that's, that's how it is laid out. Okay, the DSM. Most of you know about the DSM, right? The diagnostics, is, we're up to number five. Okay, it lists the criteria for mental disorders. So it basically says criteria A, you have to do this, like that. And the thing that the um, DSM five, the DSMs are really good at, uh, particularly three, four, and five, they address reliability. A doctor here, a doctor in uh, New York, a doctor in London, a doctor in Shanghai, China, can look at this, uh, different people and, or look at the same person and come up with the same diagnosis because we have the same definition now. That's super useful. It addresses validity a little less um, successfully. Now, what is the difference between validity and reliability? Let me just put it to you this way. Uh, Jeff Holzman, who's a neurobiologist, a famous neuroscientist, says, I don't care about it being true. I just want it to be consistent. That's measuring things by reliability. Reliability is super important. Uh, another uh, famous neuroscientist, Michael Gazagana, said, all we are striving for is to be more right than wrong. So what validity means is, are we uh, encompassing something that is really there, or are we like, doing something that's kind of a gamish of things? So... Now, how, do we, how does the DSM define psychiatric disorders? What is the operational definition of a psychiatric disorder? In the DSM, it says, it, this, this definition called the harmful dysfunction definition. And what that says is there have to be two criteria for something, any phenomenon to be a mental disorder. It has to arise from a dysfunction of underlying mental mechanisms. So it has to be something to do with the mind, basically. It has to be a problem of the mind. So it could be judgment. It could be attention. It could be... Um, anxiety or, or uh, things like that. And then it has to cause a harm. It has to cause a problem for the individual. So if it doesn't do both of these things, then it's not a mental disorder per se. Okay. So the, other, the DSM is very wise also in that it says these are things that are not mental disorders specifically. So just to, to be straight, it can't be an expectable or culturally approved response to a common stressor. So if the person starts crying after their wife of 30 years dies, two days ago, we don't, that's not a disorder. It's not a mental disorder. That's a normal, expectable response. It can't be only socially deviant behavior. So, uh, so political dissidents, mass murderers, that's not a 
mental disorder. Neither a conflict between the individual and society. That's not a mental disorder. I put these little asterisks here, unless it's the result of a dysfunction of the brain or of the mind. So if the socially deviant behavior or a conflict between an individual and society comes about because of some problem with the mental mechanism, then we think of it as a disorder. So if someone has a psychotic symptom, like they believe the FBI is out to kill them, and therefore they're going to go out and um, you know, write letters to all the uh, FBI offices and, and uh, picket outside them, um, that would be considered a mental disorder. Because there's some function in the brain that we believe, we don't know exactly, but we have reasons to suspect that it's not, there's some brain problem with this individual who believe, who's so paranoid about the FBI. Okay. Now, the other thing, to, and I won't dwell on this, but in the DSM, there are, there's a hierarchy. Some diagnoses trump other diagnoses. So it's just because they have similar symptoms, some of them are considered to be superordinate over others. Okay. So now, I, I'm going to show a little clip here just as a little uh, comic relief, but uh, mental illness diagnosed and defined in the symptoms. What is the problem with the DSM mode of defining mental disorders? I believe that there's some... Uh, cultural uh, issues with it, like people are confused about how the DSM actually works, and, I, and I'm going to prove this by showing you a clip from The Simpsons. Are, is everyone familiar with The Simpsons? Homer's the dad, Bart is the son. So Homer's watching TV, and Bart is trying to do a psychiatric diagnosis. Hey, Dad, do you hear voices? Yes, I'm hearing one right now that I'm trying to watch TV. Yes. Are you quick to anger? Bart, shut up or I'll shut you up. Yes. Do you wet your pants? Well, even the best of us has an occasional accident. <laughs> so did I pair? <laughs> no. Careful, man. He wets his pants. Uh, the devil with his fly open. Right. Uh, let's just spill on the floor with bugs going after it. They're going to eat it. Good. Let's see. It's the voice! This isn't fair! How can you tell who's sane and who's insane? Well, we have a very simple method. Whoever has that stamp on his hand is insane. That, I don't know why I gave you this whole talk. You could have just seen that. We have this little stamp. Anyone know who this person is? Darwin. Darwin. Excellent. Charles Darwin. Why do I bring him up here? He did these studies about the, the finches um, in the Galapagos Islands, right? And he, uh, he, he noticed that there are different, the, the different animals begin to look the same, even though they're from different sources. The term for that is convergent evolution. So if you look at like, um, uh, animals from uh, in Australia, you have certain animals that look really similar to animals here in North America, but they're actually really different genetically. They come from the ancestors go way back. So that's convergent evolution, because given the situation, the environment, people be, the, the creatures begin to evolve to look more and more similar because they have to adapt to the same kind of situation. So if they live in a cold environment, they have more fur, for example. If they swim, they develop like more webs on their feet. Does that make sense? So that's convergent evolution. And now we get to Lake Tanganyika cichlids. Has anyone heard of Lake Tanganyika cichlids? What do you know about Lake Tanganyika cichlids? There are hundreds and hundreds of different species in Lake Tanganyika. Um, and and they look really different, right? They're, they're like, and they've, they've, they've developed, evolved into all the different ecosystems. Some like swim on the bottom, some swim at the top, some eat, other, some eat plants, some eat other cichlids, other fish. The interesting thing about them, the reason why I bring them up, evolutionarily, genetically, they're all really similar. 
the idea is in Lake Tanganyika, it's, it's a landlocked island, or it only has some tributaries. So there's a few hundred fish that got in there way back when, and those progenitor fish be, spread out and became all the other fish. So the idea is that even though they all look really different, genetically underlying, they're really similar. Okay? So the, the, the question then that comes up in psychiatry, we have the same kind of problem. They, things that may look the same may be really different, and things that look really different may have the same genetic or biological or brain underpinnings. Okay, so we, since we don't know the underlying cause or how the brain works exactly, we don't know the, the linkage between the mind and the brain. So we, we, we may be stuck in either one of these situations. We don't know for sure. So uh, just uh, the bottom line of, so that's the one, another conceptual thing with the DSM, is that I'll just summarize here. The DSM uses a harmful dysfunction definition. Uh, diagnostic decisions rely on phenomenology, and that's a fancy word for the patient presentation, what the patient shows, not on etiology. We don't know the causes. We don't know how the brain actually works to generate mood. We don't know the details of these things, so it's very hard for us to say the cause of them. And diagnoses that may appear slimmer actually may share different etiologies. So people may look depressed, but there may be lots of different causes that, make, that are really different from each other. Similarly, others appear, may, may appear different but turn out to be really similar. So we often, in psychiatry, we distinguish between anxiety and depression. They may have some really similar manifestations, actually. They may have some uh, similar etiologies. Okay, so that's the DSM. That's where we are now. And when I kind of talk to the medical students about the DSM, I say, this is what you need to know as the basis for general everyday doctoring kind of stuff and for tests. So when I say for tests, they really perk their ear up. But really, it's for doctoring. This is what we go by. Okay. Now, what are some of the limitations of the DSM? If you do studies just based on the DSM, it's really hard to still understand, do you know anything about the brain? So the example I gave is uh, Tom Insel, who was the former head of the NMH. He decided to go and do the, uh, start a different initiative, a very exciting initiative called the Research Domain Criteria. Because for years and years, the, D, uh, the um, uh, NIMH, the National Institutes of Mental Health, has funded studies looking at, for example, drugs. Do they work or do they not work? But the problem with that is it's very useful to find out if drugs work for depression or not. The problem is, is despite having all these studies, it doesn't tell you anything about the functioning of the brain. So the NIMH, his complaint was, we've spent millions and millions of dollars on these studies, but we're not any closer to understanding how the brain actually works. That's what we want to know. So he developed another set of criteria by which you can begin to explore how the brain works, basically by looking from the bottom up, meaning we know that there are certain functions of the brain, and how do we, we should study those and then see how they might be related to our disorders rather than taking our disorders and trying to figure out what the brain functions are. Okay? So the examples are, and the research domain criteria are divided arbitrarily up into these five domains. They're called domains. Uh, there are negative valence systems, there are positive valence systems, there are cognitive systems, there are systems for social processes, and there are arousal and regulatory systems. So those are five different kind of just man-made ways of grouping it just so that we can begin to study it. That's not, the brain doesn't have five different pieces. There isn't any a priori reason why there are five. It's just the way, just to make it easier for us to group these things and understand them. So I'll just go through these really briefly. The negative valence systems are things like we have um, models for fear and anxiety in animals, and we can measure them in people as well. So beginning to look at what are the basic mechanisms, what, what triggers fear in animals and in humans. Positive valence systems would be 
motivation, approach motivation. Some people are more motivated than others. Uh, and is that related to disease? Well, I'm, I run our bipolar program, and one of the findings that um, has been found in people with bipolar disorders that, in, in, interestingly, is people who have bipolar disorder are much more likely to score very highly on high levels of motivation and achievement. Similarly, people who profess, uh, endorse high levels of motivation and ambition are more likely to have bipolar disorder. So that, what is the relation? We don't know exactly the relationship between those, but it begins to help us understand, because we do... Be, we can understand like motivation on a brain level. So you can do experiments, for example, in rats. How much electricity will this rat you know, um, uh, withstand in order to get like a treat? That would be an example. And you can measure this uh, numerically, uh, for example. Um, uh, you, can, um, uh, you can say how long will this rat keep uh, working for something? That's another example of ambition and so forth. And for example, people with bipolar disorder are more likely to endorse, when I see something I want, I'll really go for it. There's no point in doing something unless you go 100% and try to and, and finish it. That would be an example of high motivation, highly ambitious individuals. Now that doesn't necessarily, just because you endorse those things, that, that means you have an illness or you have bipolar disorder. It's only a risk factor for that. So it's very interesting because then we can begin to tunnel down and like, what are the brain part, what are the parts of the brain that mediate motivation, reward, fear, things like that. I want to talk a little bit more in detail about cognitive systems, because I would say in some ways we know a lot more about cognitive systems than we know about the other pieces. Cognitive systems, so then, so there's the overarching domain, and then underneath them there are what they call constructs. So the construct of attention, perception, declarative memory, language, Cognitive control, working memory, those are constructs. So those are smaller pieces then underneath the domain that can be studied. And then each construct may have sub-constructs. So under perception, you might have visual perception, what you see, auditory perception, how you hear. Those kinds of things are, are different. I'm going to show you, I'm going to dwell a little bit about on attention at this point. So... Um, I'm going to show a video here about kind of looking at different people's attention. So uh, when you're watching some of these videos, I encourage you to try to do exactly what they tell you and try to participate as much as possible. And so in this one, uh, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. I'll let it do. Business illusion. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. How many? Did you spot the gorilla? How many people spot the gorilla? <laughs> For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? How many people noticed? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold.
When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. And that's the monkey business illusion. Okay, so that's like a, a psychological test that you could give to people and test like what percentage of people saw the gorilla, what people didn't, what percentage of people saw the, um, um, the curtain changing or one of the people leaving. That would be a psychological test for those kinds of things. So you could begin to measure attention and attentional span. Uh, I'm going to show you this other, uh, uh, I think it's a TED talk, uh, by, uh, from a guy named Apollo Robbins. He's a pickpocket, and he's going to show you how he plays with attention to do what he does. So it's a little bit more, I don't know if it's pragmatic is the right word, but it's a little bit more applied. So again, when he asks you to do things, I really recommend that you try to do them too, okay? So when he, just to, to, to get the full effect here. Do you think it's possible to control someone's attention? Even more than that, what about predicting human behavior? I think those are interesting ideas, if you could. I mean, for me, that'd be the perfect superpower. <laughs> Actually, kind of an evil way of approaching it. But for myself, in the past, I've spent the last 20 years studying human behavior from a rather unorthodox way, picking pockets. When we think of misdirection, we think of something as looking off to the side when actually it's often the things that are right in front of us that are the hardest things to see, the things that you look at every day that you're blinded to. For example, how many of you still have your cell phones on you right now? Great. Double check. Make sure you still have them on you. I was doing some shopping beforehand. Now, you've looked at them probably a few times today, but I'm going to ask you a question about it. Without looking at your cell phone directly yet, can you remember the icon in the bottom right corner? Bring them out, check, and see how accurate you were. How'd you do? Show of hands, did we get it? Now that you're done looking at those, close them down. Because every phone has something in common. No matter how you organize the icons, you still have a clock on the front. So without looking at your phone, what time was it? You just looked at your clock, right? It's an interesting idea. Now I'll ask you to take that a step further with a game of trust. Close your eyes. I realize I'm asking you to do that while you just heard there's a pickpocket in the room. But close your eyes. Now, you've been watching me for about 30 seconds. With your eyes closed, what am I wearing? Make your best guess. What color is my shirt? What color is my tie? Now open your eyes. By showing hands, were you right? It's interesting, isn't it? Some of us are a little bit more perceptive than others. It seems that way. But I have a different theory about that, that model of attention. They have fancy models of attention, Posner's trendy model of attention. For me, I like to think of it very simple, like a surveillance system. It's kind of uh, like you have all these fancy sensories, and inside your brain is a little security guard. For me, I like to call him Frank. So Frank is sitting at a desk. He's got all sorts of cool information in front of him, high-tech equipment. He's got cameras. He's got a little phone that he can pick up, listen to the ears. All these senses, all these perceptions. But attention is what steers your perceptions, is what controls your reality. It's the gateway to the mind. If you don't attend to something, you can't be aware of it. But ironically, you can attend to something without being aware of it. That's why there's the cocktail effect. When you're in a party, you're having conversations with someone, and yet you can recognize your name, and you didn't even realize you were listening to that. Now, for my job, I have to play with techniques to exploit this, to play with your attention as a limited resource. So if I could control how you spend your attention, if I could maybe steal your attention through a distraction. Now, instead of doing it like misdirection and throwing it off to the side, instead what I choose to focus on is Frank, to be able to play with the Frank inside your head. 
your little security guard and get you, instead of focusing on your external senses, just to go internal for a second. So if I ask you to access a memory, like, what is that? What just happened? Do you have a wallet? Do you have an American Express in your wallet? And when I do that, your Frank turns around. He accesses the file. He has to rewind the tape. And what's interesting is he can't rewind the tape at the same time that he's trying to process new data. Now, I mean, this sounds like a good theory, but I could talk for a long time and tell you lots of things, and they may be true, a portion of them, but I think it's better if I tried to show that to you here live. So, uh, if I come down, I'm going to do a little bit of shopping. Just hold still where you are. Hello, how are you? It's lovely to see you. You did a wonderful job on stage. You have a lovely watch that doesn't come off very well. Do you have your ring as well? Good, just taking inventory. You're like a buffet. It's hard to tell where to start. There's so many great things. Hi, how are you? Good to see you. Hi, sir, could you stand up for me, please? Just right where you are. Oh, you're married. You follow the directions well. That's nice to meet you, sir. You don't have a whole lot inside your pockets. Anything down by the pocket over here? Hopefully so. Have a seat. There you go. You're doing well. Hi, sir, how are you? Good to see you, sir. You have a ring, a watch. Do you have a wallet on you? Uh, well, we'll find one for you. Come on up this way, Joe. Give Joe a round of applause. Come on up, Joe. Let's play a game. Pardon me. Don't think that you need this clicker anymore. You can have that. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Come on up to the stage, Joe. Let's play a little game. Now, do you have anything in your front pockets? Money. All right, let's try that. <laughs> can you stand right over this way for me? Turn around and let's see. If I give you something that belongs to me, this is just something, uh, a half a poker chip. Hold out your hand for me. Watch it kind of close. Now, this is a task for you to focus on. Now, you have your money in your front pocket here? Yep. Good. I'm not going to actually put my hand in your pocket. I'm not ready for that kind of commitment. One time a guy had a hole in his pocket and that was rather traumatizing. <laughs> I was looking for his wallet and he gave me his phone number. It was a big miscommunication. So, let's do this simply. Squeeze your hand. Squeeze it tight. Do you feel the poker chip in your hand? Would you be surprised if I could take it out of your hand? Say yes? Good. Open your hand. Thank you very much. I'll cheat if you give me a chance. Make it harder for me. Just use your hand. Grab my wrist, but squeeze. Squeeze firm. Did you see it go? No. No, it's not here. Open your hand. See, while we're focused on the hand, it's sitting on your shoulder right now. Go ahead and take it off. Now, let's try that again. Hold your hand out flat, open it up all the way. Put your hand up a little bit higher, but watch it close there, Joe. See, if I did it slowly, it'd be back on your shoulder. <laughs> Joe, we're going to keep doing this till you catch it. You're going to get it eventually. I have faith in you. Squeeze firm. Squeeze. You're human. You're not slow. It's back on your shoulder. You're focused on your hand. That's why you were distracted. While you were watching this, I couldn't quite get your watch off. It was difficult. Yet you had something inside your front pocket. Do you remember what it was? Check your pocket, see if it's still there. Is it still there? Oh, that's where it was. Go ahead and put it away. We're just shopping. This trick's more about the timing, really. I'm going to try to push it inside your hand. Put your other hand on top for me, would you? It's amazingly obvious now, isn't it? It looks a lot like the watch I was wearing, doesn't it? Oh, thanks. But it's only a start. Let's try it again a little bit differently. Hold your hands together. Put your other hand on top. Now, if you're watching this little token, this obviously has become a little target. It's like a red herring. If we watch this kind of close, it looks like it goes away. It's not back on your shoulder. It falls out of the air, lands right back in the hand. Did you see it go? That's fine. Got a little guy, he's union. He works up there all day. If I did slowly, if it goes straight away, it lands down by your pocket. I believe, is it in this pocket, sir? No, don't reach in your pocket. That's a different show. Uh, sorry. 
That's rather strange. They have shots for that. Here, can I show them what that is? That's rather bizarre. Is this yours, sir? Yes. I have no idea how that works. We'll just send that over there. That's great. I need help with this one. Step over this way for me. Now, don't run away. You had something down by your pants pocket. I was checking mine. I couldn't find everything. But I noticed you had something here. Uh, feel the outside of your pocket for a moment. Down here, I noticed this. Is this something of yours, sir? Is this... I had no idea. That's a shrimp. <laughs> yeah, saving it for later. You've entertained all these people in a wonderful way. Better than you know. So we'd love to give you this lovely watch as a gift. <laughs> Hopefully it matches his taste. Uh, but also we have a couple of other things. A little bit of cash. And then we have a few other things. These all belong to you, along with a big round of applause from all your friends. Joe, thank you very much. So, same question I asked you before, but this time you don't have to close your eyes. What am I wearing? Attention is a powerful thing. Like I said, it shapes your reality. So I guess I'd like to pose that question to you. If you could control somebody's attention, what would you do with it? Thank you. Okay. So that's an example of attention in practice and how... and. Just, just to bring up the idea that is, that's the goal of how do we understand how a brain has a limited resource of attention. It, in some ways, it's unconscious attention because you can manipulate attention in ways that the person doesn't want to. You can distract them and so forth. So, oh, and by the way, uh, we don't have time to view this, but if you want to see how he, he does these things, he gives a description of actually how he does these in this video here. So if you have time and have access to this present, you can go back and watch this video. There's another video on perception, visual perception by Bo Lotto, which you can see there. It's very cool as well. A lot of these, and perception, the brain does a ton of work processing visual imagery uh, and a lot of time learning, too. Babies and stuff are learning. And so this shows you like, how unconscious it really is and showing you different kinds of, um, uh, in some ways, using optical illusions, or not really optical illusions, but just showing uh, how your brain processes different kinds of visual images based on context. Um, the last system I want to talk about that I think is really interesting, in particular to psychiatrists, are systems for social processing. These are also what we could thought of are things that you're kind of unaware of, also known as being unconscious of, uh, brain functions or mind things that you do, but you're not even aware of them sometimes. And these things are like important things like affiliation and attachment, social communication, perception and understanding of self, perception and understanding of others. And how do we, we usually think of these as being... That's just something, you know, empathy or something, that's just something we do. But people have begun to try to study it, and they've called this concept the theory of mind. How many of you have heard of theory of mind? That's understanding how other people think. And it's not something, and it turns out it's something that gets learned um, and develops over time. And I'm going to show you a little clip here, for, also from YouTube, of theory of mind. I hope it works. Um, uh, just describing, give you a better sense of, how they, of what it is. Well, you've probably discovered that however smart your three-year-old is, she doesn't seem able to put herself in someone else's mental shoes to imagine how they think and what they believe. 
Perhaps you thought your parenting skills were to blame. But scientists suggest that understanding other minds is a skill that may not be fully developed until a child is about four. To learn how children's social skills evolve between about three and four, researchers use something called a false belief test. What do you think's in this box? Looks fairly obvious, doesn't it? Crayons. But let me show you. I filled it full of candles. All right, now I close it up again. While you and I have been having this conversation, Snoopy has been down here asleep. Doesn't know what we've talked about. But let's bring him into the conversation. Now I have another question for you. What do you think Snoopy will say if I ask him what's in this box? Crayons, obviously. What else could anybody possibly say? Well, watch this three-year-old. What do you think is inside this box? Let's open it up and see. Candles. Now, you can ask the child what appears to be a very simple question about that. What did you think was inside the box when you first saw it? They say, oh, I always thought that there were candles in this box. Then you can ask them about someone else. So you can ask them about Snoopy. Snoopy's been sitting here. He hasn't seen this box. He's never seen us open it up. What does Snoopy think is inside this box? Uh, candles. Children say the same thing. Snoopy will think there are candles inside this box. And what that indicates is that the children's view of how minds work is very, very different from the view that you and I would have. Did you see it? In the mind of the three-year-old, everyone sees the world much the same way. There's no difference between what I think and believe and what everyone else, including Snoopy, thinks and believes. It is, in a sense, a naive and innocent view of the world, a kind of mental Eden. And then, about four, comes the fall from grace. Now, if you take a four-year-old, quite typically the four-year-old will tell you that, as a matter of fact, he thought there were crayons in the box, and then he found out that there were candles in the box. You can ask him about Snoopy, and he'll say, oh no, Snoopy will think that there are crayons in this box. Great, why will he think that? Because it's a crayon box. Mm-hmm, that's right. And that's going to make him think they're crayons. What's really in the box? Candles. That's right. And then you get the five-year-olds who are just utterly blasé and think that this is such an obvious thing, it's silly even to ask the question. What that shows is that by the time children are four or five, they have a view of the mind that looks much more like our view of the mind. They understand that things can be tricky and deceptive, that you can change your mind, that things aren't always the way that they seem. And that gives them a very different vision of how the mind works and how people work. Remember, we're sharing this. Oh, I need that. And then it's my turn. Children who pass the false belief test now understand that other people can have different beliefs, even mistaken beliefs. Some scientists suggest that this test is further evidence of innate brain circuits specialized for reading other people's minds. They call it a theory of mind mechanism. Um, and I want to also emphasize that, that is, it's, not an on, it's not an on or off kind of thing. You either have theory of mind. You could see that as you develop and grow, you get better at it. As you become, I like to say to the medical students, as you become a doctor and have more experience, you get a better sense of life experience and you understand what other people may be thinking. It just, it just comes, it's actually something that grows and develops over a long period of time. Um, 
If you have a chance, uh, there's a, I've attached a couple of other, embedded a couple other cool videos. Here's one which we don't have time to look at, but this is a video by Rebecca Sachs, uh, another very smart um, neuroscientist who looks at moral judgment. And it turns out theory of mind and moral judgment are related uh, in the sense of understanding why someone does, whether it's morally right or wrong. In some ways, you have to put yourself in that other person's position. Would I do that? Would I? That is a kind of uh, uh, how morality interfaces with... Um, theory of mind. Um, and interestingly, in some of her studies, they've, they've localized a piece of the brain called the temporoparietal junction, which is a part of the brain that integrates uh, a lot of other processes of the brain, kind of a higher order thing, higher order period, uh, area of the brain. And you can stun that uh, part of the brain or make it quiescent by using uh, magnetic waves, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and show that people's moral judgments will change if you are able to uh, influence that piece of the brain called the temporal parietal junction. Very cool uh, video. If you get a chance, TED Talk, I recommend you get a chance if you get a chance to watch it. So that is the theory of mind, and I, you know, this is the kind of thing that empathy, compassion, uh, all these things come out of this. So we like to, we want to understand how that works, and also we know that in a lot of psychiatric disorders, this area is impaired. Now, you might say it's a very nonspecific problem in some sense. Nonspecific meaning like many things can cause impairments in your compassion and your empathy. Like if you're hungry or angry or tired or lonely, those things will begin to suppress your ability to think about how other people are thinking and feeling empathic. But there are also psychiatric disorders that interfere with this ability. This ability also, autism or Asperger's syndrome, is thought to be lesions that are in some ways, very fairly localized to only having deficits in this area. By definition, Asperger, individuals with Asperger's syndrome have good you know, me- memory and can think and have ex- can manipulate symbols and stuff like that. Where they're lacking is the social communication. It turns out that it's the, in humans, it's a relatively highly developed area of the brain or mind. Okay, that's systems for social processing. So it looks like I'm, I'm almost out of time here. Thank you. Uh, so that's very good timing. So that is, in a nutshell, the research domain criteria. And I hope I've kind of, with the videos, I've really just tried to give you a teaser of the power of this way of looking at the brain. Because from this, you can begin to work from the bottom up as opposed from the top down and begin to understand how the brain does what it does, how the brain becomes the mind. So something like theory of mind, the ability of sympathy or empathy, that is a mind activity, but it comes from the brain, and how do we understand that? So I hope you uh, understand that that is um, the new way of thinking about things. So let me just summarize a little bit here. We've talked about uh, the main questions about psychiatry, like how do we understand diagnoses, what are the conceptual bases for that? We talked about um, reductionist, the cultural behavioral, and the uh, emergent phenomenon. Um, we talked about the different perspectives, the disease, dimensional, behavioral, and life story perspectives and how they interact to combine, to understand how we can use those to combine, understand individual disorders. We talked about the DSM, which is how we currently understand psychiatric disorders, and that's what practically what we need to know as doctors and family members and stuff to move forward. But this really fascinating research uh, domain criteria about how it's beginning to uh, be the foundation and how we can work from the bottom up to understand psychiatric uh, or mental functioning or how the mind works.
So I, I realize this has been a huge cruise over a lot of material here. I've probably brought up more, many more questions than I have answered, and I hope so. And um, so with that, I'll stop here and take questions. And thank you very much for coming tonight and being here with me. As a psychiatrist, at this point of our understanding, so the question is, do we order a brain scan as a doctor, or do we use these perspectives to understand In psychiatry, by definition, we do not have a brain scan that can tell us if someone has depression or if they have bipolar disorder or if they have schizophrenia. So we have to go by the symptoms that the person tells us. But just because we we get all the symptoms doesn't mean we cannot still understand them on lots of other different levels. To make it a more um, individualized kind of diagnosis or formulation is kind of the word we often use. Diagnosis implies a single word, ideological entity, whereas a formulation is kind of encompassing lots of different approaches and trying to understand the person from several different perspectives. So the question is, are personality disorders mental disorders? Um, I'll just summarize it like that. So it depends on how you look at it. So we do believe, and I haven't gotten into the understanding of this, but if you think of personality as a kind of dimensional perspective, uh, from a dimensional perspective. So we all have different personalities. Some of us are more um, agreeable than others. Some of us are more conscientious than others. Some of us are more prone to anxiety or, or have stronger emotional responses than others. Some of us are more emotionally stable than others. If you think of personality as being on that that level, you can think of it as being dimensional and that people have um, different dimensions that make up different dimensions that make up their own personality. These dimensions, we believe, have a biological substrate to them, meaning that they are brain-mediated. Why one person is more apt to feel anxious in a certain situation than another person, that that can be mediated not only by prior history and context, but also brain biology, which is in turn mediated by context. So personality disorders, from the perspective of dimensions, is a disorder. That's the way I might, view, might conceptualize it. Now, some people might have, you could have a brain tumor that impacts on certain parts, and that would make you an extremely aggressive person, for example. Pretty rare, by the way, but if you had, then that would be a disease. So we don't, it, it depends on the situation. So we don't say everyone who has a certain thing definitely has this. How, would, how, do FM, how does fMRI help with the diagnosis? At this point in psychiatry, fMRI is not something we use on a daily basis to make a diagnosis. If you take 100 people with depression and you do fMRI scans, and when you do the fMRI scans, you have to give them special tests while they're in the scanner to bring out certain things, like show them sad faces or things like that. You can show a proclivity, like 60 of them might show certain places light up, which is different than 100 non-depressed people. Only 10 of those people would have a certain area of the brain light up. So it's good from a research point of view, but from an actual individual patient point of view, it's not so helpful. So thank you so much. It's been great having you. have been a great audience, and um, have a good evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.